Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Bible, please take it this morning and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We are making our way through Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and we're in chapter 4 this morning, beginning in verse 9 through verse 12. There was an early church father, early part of the third century by the name of Tertullian. Uh, Tertullian, he was known for, for many things. He was actually the first Christian author to begin writing in Latin. Many of the early church writings were in Latin. He was also the very first that we know of to use the term Trinity. So he was known for several things. But Tertullian, he was an apologist. And, and he wrote at a time when Christianity and the church were being opposed in the early part of the third century. And so he devoted himself and his writings to defending and defining the Christian faith. In fact, in his classic work, The Apology, that's what it's called, The Apology, Tertullian, he points out many uh, theological philosophical arguments for the truthfulness and the rationality of the Christian faith. He was an amazing apologist um, defending the faith in the early church. But Tertullian, he was also quick to point out that it really wasn't any of those theological philosophical arguments that would ultimately persuade someone to believe in Jesus. But rather, Tertullian said, it was the seemingly extraordinary love that Christians had for one another. That it was the love that Christians had for one another that was ultimately the greatest apologetic defense of the Christian faith. A love that baffled them. And in many cases, won them over. Here's what Tertullian says. Notice this quote. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, see how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. No tragedy causes trouble in our brotherhood, and the family possessions, which generally destroy brotherhood among you, meaning unbelievers, create fraternal bonds among us, one in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are in common among us, except our wives. And that, Tertullian said, was the most powerful apologetic to an unbelieving world. And church, here in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul says that it is this same kind of love that is meant to demonstrate to the watching world the transforming power of the gospel. And that 
the truth of the gospel, brothers and sisters, it won't just be heard in our words, it will be seen in our love and acts of love toward each other. In fact, as you heard earlier in John chapter 13, Jesus said, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That the world will look at our lives and see the transforming effect of the gospel by our unique love for one another. That's nothing new. You've heard that before. I'm sure. But what we discover here this morning in our text, in verses 9 to 12, is that Paul is going to show us here that this love that he's describing, it will be seen in the normal, everyday, mundane activities of your life. An extraordinary love in the ordinary. And so this passage is extremely practical because it's meant to touch our everyday lives. And, and what it's going to reveal is that the normal, the ordinary, are actually infused with meaning and significance and purpose by God. There, there, there are no mundane tasks in the Christian life. No, because the gospel shapes the ordinary details of our everyday lives and and. It provides us opportunities to please God and to love others. Whether it be our daily life, our daily jobs, our serving of our families, our caring for our church, our participating in our small groups, our use of social media, all of it. All of them are intended to glorify God, build up His church, and extend the gospel to the lost world. And that's what we see here today. Let's look at it together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Would you stand as we read this passage together beginning in verse 9? The Apostle Paul writes, Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may live properly among outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. You can be seated. I told you last week that the letter of 1 Thessalonians can really be divided into two parts. Where in part one, chapters one to three, Paul has been focusing on the past, his, his founding visit to Thessalonica, his relationship with his church, and his gratefulness to God for this church. That's what we've seen. But beginning here now in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, Paul, he transitions now in this letter and really for the rest of this letter to addressing the needs of this church. In fact, if you look back, notice Paul's prayer for them, chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, which I told you was sort of a, a hinge, sort of a, a turning point in the letter just before he gets to these instructions in chapter 4. Look there, Paul in chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, signals there in that prayer for them his two main concerns for this church. 
that, that he's going to pick up now in the rest of the letter. Look, look at chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. So do you see his two main concerns there for, for this church? The first one, notice in verse 12, that they would abound more and more in love. And then notice his second in verse 13, that they would be established in holiness. And now, here, he turns first to exhorting them in holiness, as we saw last week, chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, and now their love abounding, chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. But also, please don't miss this, Paul's main exhortation here, chapters 4 and 5, for all of these instructions, what is it? Well, look there again, chapter 4, verse 1, that they would live in such a way to please God. The Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, you and I, are to live our lives to please God. And that includes not only our pursuit of holiness and sexual purity, but also now our love for one another in the church. The way we love each other in the church is in an effort to please God, and it testifies to the unbelieving world about God's glory and the transforming power of the gospel. And in Paul's next exhortation here now, we see three aspects of love. Three aspects of love that should mark our lives, that should mark this church, and listen, that transform the ordinary stuff of life into opportunities for you to please God and love others. Three headings. Number one, the priority of love, verses 9 to 10, the priority of love. Second, the ordinary expressions of love, verse 11, and there will be three ways Paul wants their love to be expressed, verse 11. And then third, the powerful effect of love. And he's going to give two effects in verse 12. So first, just notice the priority of love. The priority of love, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, notice it begins with that phrase, now concerning. Notice there, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, which alerts us that Paul is now changing topics. He's changing subjects here from that of sexual purity, as we saw last week in verses 1 to 8. And now he's turning to the topic of love, beginning here now in verse 9. And that phrase there, now concerning, it also seems to indicate that, that Paul's exhortation here to them in verses 9 to 12, it's, it's based, at least it seems in part, on Timothy's good report that he had brought to Paul after visiting this church. Remember back, look at chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. So Paul, he had 
seen firsthand their love back in chapter 1, verse 3. He'd heard now from Timothy's report that their love was continuing, chapter 3, verse 6, and now he has more he wants to say about it. Chapter 4, verse 9. And in verse 9, notice Paul begins, look there first, by commending them. He is, he's commending them. He is, he is encouraging them for their love. Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, we have no need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So notice the commendation. What a commendation this is. Verse 9, you have no need for anybody to write to you. Which could mean that Paul had already taught them this when he was with them. I mean, you already know this. I already taught you this. I don't need to tell you again. But just as likely, this is Paul's commendation that they're already doing this. They're already loving each other. Well, they don't even need to be taught. They don't need to be told to love one another. You're doing it. So think about this. Here, 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 is, here is a young church plant. Some scholars say probably no more than four to six months old, this church plant. And even in the midst of all of this persecution and opposition and affliction that they're facing, they are already demonstrating the fruit of their conversion by loving each other well. This was their defining virtue. And he commends them because they are loving well. But it's not just any kind of love. Look there. Verse 9 raises two questions in my mind. Here are the two questions. What kind of love is this? And if they don't need to be taught to love, then where did they learn it? Question number one. What, what kind of love is he talking about? Look at verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love. Brotherly love. The, the, the actual word here in the Greek is the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, which as a Dallas Cowboys fan, when I hear that, I don't think of that, right? Eagles. Ugh. Brotherly love. Outside the Bible, this word is always used to refer to love among siblings. Blood, brothers and sisters, family. But incredibly, inside the Bible, this word is picked up and it's applied by the New Testament writers to the church. Our, our relationships with, with fellow believers in the church. Paul uses the same word in Romans 12.10 where he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. And it's a word that is filled with familiarity and, and affection and fondness and loyalty and solidarity and devotion. Brotherly love. The brothers and sisters, as, as those who have been rescued by Christ and we have been united to Christ, there is something deeper than blood. And that you and I, we share together in redeeming grace. We share together in this, this eternal life. In fact, here in just a moment, 
We're actually going to get the opportunity as a church to give testimony to this as we partake together of the bread and the cup. Because what we're doing is we're symbolizing together this, this unity we have together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that now, now we have a shared possession in the very same spirit. We have a shared identity as children of God and we share an eternal future forevermore with our Heavenly Father. That's incredible. And, and knowing that, it produces something in us. At least it should. It produces brotherly love and affection for one another in the church. Brothers and sisters of the same family. And here Paul, he is commending them for their love because this was a church where their love was seen, and it was known, and it was felt, it was obvious. Yes, he, he taught them this, chapter 4, verse 2, in his instructions, but it was evident. Is it evident among us? Is this how we think about care for one another? Here's the second question, though. Where they learned it? Where they learned this love. Look at verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need to anyone to write to you for, here's why, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Who, who taught them to love like this? God. You've been taught by God. What does that mean? Taught by God. Well, interestingly, verse 9, taught by God, it's one word in the original language. Actually, it's two words that Paul combines into one. Literally, it reads God taught. God taught. And this word, it exists nowhere else outside the Bible and only here inside the Bible. Meaning what? Paul made it up. He coined it himself. You, you don't need us to write to you about this because you've been God taught to love each other. What does that mean? Well, they hadn't just been taught by, God, uh, by Paul. Chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 11. No, they had been taught by God himself. John Stott writes this in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians. Paul's reference seems to be to teaching that was given neither by the Father in the Old Testament, although he did, love your neighbor, nor by the Son during his public ministry, although he did, this is a new commandment I give you, love each other, but rather by the Holy Spirit indwelling their hearts. That's what he means. In other words, this kind of brotherly love here is something, friends, that is produced in us by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul says there, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. This, this is a supernatural 
love that God places in the heart of every single believer as those who have been transformed by the power of God's love in Christ. So that this love then, it spills over into brotherly love for one another in the church and, and, and it's a supernatural working of the Spirit in us where our hearts are drawn to one another in the church. And it creates this deep inner bond and affection and it's put there by God. In fact, the Apostle John says this brotherly love is actually the hallmark of genuine saving faith. What is the distinguishing mark of a Christian? The Apostle John says at least one of them is your love for the church. 1 John 3, look there, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, that's chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, by the way. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. The evidence that we passed from spiritual death to spiritual life, John says, is we love the church. Because he goes on in verse 14 to say, we know we've passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. The church. So my friends, listen very carefully. The genuine believer, the genuine Christian does not need to be taught to love the church. Yes, they can grow deeper in that love. They can be corrected in that love. They can be shown more clearly how to love, but they don't need to be taught to love the church. No, because it's just part now of the new nature. This, this is the explicit and expected fruit as those who have been transformed by the gospel. And, and this is God's grace at work in us. This is what God does in, in us. God taught. That's what he means. And that love, it was on display in this church. But notice it wasn't just evident in this local church. Look there, verse 10. It had been extending beyond this church as well to all the surrounding churches. Look at verse 10. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So verse 10, not only was their love being expressed within this church, it was extending outside the walls of this church to all the surrounding area of northern Greece. So churches in Philippi, the church of Philippi, the church in Berea, all of Macedonia. Remember back chapter 1, verse 8? How the word was sounding forth from this church? Paul says, so is, there, so is your love. Meaning, their love, it wasn't ingrown. Clicks. It was extending beyond the walls to surrounding churches. Let that be a lesson for us. How are we loving the surrounding churches in our own area? Are there ways we can love them better? Because that, that, that was the atmosphere in this church. Produced, empowered, 
by the Spirit, through the gospel, caring for one another, serving one another, being devoted to one another, a desire to be together where their hearts are drawn to each other. That's what love does. But then, look at verse 10. After commending them, Paul has an exhortation for them about this as well, about this love. Look at verse 10. But we urge you, brothers. Same phrase as chapter 4, verse 1. We urge you to do this, to love one another, more and more. So, yes, their love, they were loving each other well, but Paul wants them to go even deeper. One commentator says, Paul doesn't regard love for one another as an achievement attained once for all time, but as a fountain which is continually overflowing. And, and brothers and sisters, I think it's a reminder to us that we can be a loving church. We can be excelling in love, but there's always room to grow. There's always ways in which we, in uh, our love for one another, can go deeper and can be stronger isn't that what he prayed for them, right? Back in chapter 3, verse 12, that, that the Lord would make you increase and abound in love. So again, let me just ask us as a church, where or how can we grow deeper in our love for each other? Are there ways in which our love for each other, for this church, could be strengthened? And, and I am thankful that, I'm thankful that... At, for all of these evidences of grace I see of, of love in, in this church as you love other, one another. In fact, there's, there's not a week that goes by where I don't hear something secondhand, okay, just secondhand from somebody else of how you guys are loving each other in different practical ways. And I just want to say, as one of your pastors, it just thrills my heart. And it's evidence of God's grace. And the only way that you go deeper in this kind of love for each other is as the love of God seen in the cross of Christ is just filling your heart more and more as it going to begin to overflow into love for others and to one another. That's the priority of love. But then look at verse 11. Paul turns now and he gives three ways in which their love for one another can grow more and more. Three ways. And what's so interesting about these three areas that Paul's about to address here is just how ordinary they are. Just mundane stuff of life. Point number two, notice the ordinary expressions of love. Verse 11, the, the, these three areas that Paul gives here in which the Thessalonians can express their love for each other in greater ways, they aren't areas or categories that you would normally think about when you think about love. Right? And, and again, this is just ordinary. It's not very flashy. <laughs> but Paul says, there are everyday opportunities for you to please God and love others. Look there, verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. It's not flashy. Do you, do you see those three, those three clauses, those three ordinary expressions of love? 
Now, before we look at each of those, the question that we need to ask first is, why these? Like, why, why, why does Paul address these three areas? In other words, was there something that was going on in this church in Thessalonica that prompted him to mention these three things? And I, I think the answer to that question is yes. There was something going on. And thankfully, we aren't left in the dark. We aren't left guessing because based on, on things in this letter and even Paul's second letter, 2 Thessalonians, it seems we have some context for why Paul would mention these three things here in verse 11. Now, again, as is often the case in these epistles, we're, we're just, you know, we're only hearing one side of the conversation here. But it seems that, that while this church was thriving in many ways, this was also a church that was plagued by idleness. Idleness, or you could say laziness. Where do we see that? Well, look over chapter 5, verse 14. Paul's going to tell us, we'll see soon. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. So it seems there were some, not all, but probably a small group in this church who were being lazy. They were being idle. They weren't working. They weren't holding down jobs based on Timothy's report. Admonish the idle. In fact, Paul, in, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, so turn there for just a moment, 2 Thessalonians, it appears this, this was still a problem by the time he writes the second letter because in 2 Thessalonians, look at chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers. So notice he's gone from urging to commanding. <laughs> we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So some, notice, were walking in idleness. And then in verse 10, notice he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. So he's, he even told them then, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we fear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So some in this church... They were unwilling to work, they were lazy, they were walking in idleness, and their idleness, notice it was actually producing another problem. Verse 11, as a result, they weren't working, they were not busy at work, they were what? Busy bodies. Leading to gossip. They weren't working, and it had become a disruptive influence in this church. Now, what was producing that, this idleness? Well, we, we, we don't know for certain, but many scholars would suggest it's, it's due to what we might call an over-realized eschatology. New Testament scholar Leon Morris calls it a second advent speculations. In other words, they were confused about the return of Jesus. 
Which is perhaps why Paul is going to go on to spend a majority of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 3, 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 11, addressing the second coming. Or even perhaps they were concluding, this is what they think, that because Jesus' return was so close, they thought, so imminent, there was really no point in continuing to work. Because he's coming soon, so they're being idle, they're not working, it's causing a strain on this church. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says this, notice this quote here. By the way, I'm so grateful for the guys that run the technology because I just say, here's all the scriptures and the quotes and just go, to keep up. F.F. Bruce comments, he says, It is more commonly supposed that undue eschatological excitement had induced a restless tendency in some of the Thessalonian Christians and made them disinclined to attend to their ordinary business. Ordinary business. And it was causing serious issues in this church, so much so that it was affecting their love for each other and their witness to the world. And so my point being here is there's a reason why Paul mentions these three. As ways, opportunities, expressions of love for one another more and more, even in the ordinary. Look at these three. Number one, first application of love, to aspire to live quietly. The New American Standard translates it, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Verse 11, but we urge you more and more, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly. In other words, Paul says, the first way you love one another more and more is by seeking to live a quiet life. Now, does that surprise anybody else? That seems strange to anybody else. A quiet life. John Stott calls this a striking oxymoron. A contradiction of terms, he says, which could render, we could render into English, make it your ambition to have no ambition. Paul says, they're to be ambitious to not be ambitious. Church, do you have ambitions for your life? Paul says, make this your ambition in life. Now, it doesn't mean be passive. It doesn't mean have no ambition because he's going to say they, they, they're to aspire. They're to be ambitious to do this. So this is not passivity Paul's calling for here, but it's what they are to aspire to. What is it? A quiet life. In other words, he's saying in their normal, everyday lives, Paul wants them to have a quieted soul. A quieted spirit. So the, the idea here is a call to cultivating tranquility and peacefulness and restfulness in your life. The opposite being agitated and restless and worried. Now, aspire to live a quiet life. And again, perhaps some had become agitated and restless thinking that Jesus' return was imminent. And so in their excitement, ordinary duties of life were being neglected. And Paul says, no, 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 no. 
I want there to be a quietness. I want there to be a calmness, a peacefulness of soul that isn't anxiously worried about outcomes, but it is exclusively preoccupied with God's glory and the good of the church. And that kind of quiet life will enable you to love others well. So, beloved, this this is, I think, extremely helpful because Paul doesn't say, I want you to grow in love, so get busy doing more things. What he says, rather, is I want you to cultivate a quiet life that aims at the glory of God, that rests in the sovereignty of God, and that's going to enable you to love other people well. You don't worry about being seen. Don't be focused on trying to just get ahead. That'll only lead to anxiousness and an unsettled life. Instead, pursue a quiet life. That's good. It is an expression of love to aspire to lead a steady, calm, peaceful life that calls attention not to me, but that I am so content in Christ that it frees me up to actually love other people well. And that's very different from the world's Definition of ambition, by the way. A quiet life. Second, not only a quiet life, second application of love, and to mind your own affairs. The NIV, or the NASB, again, translates it, attend to your own business. But verse 11, again, this, this expression here, it's actually found nowhere else in the New Testament. Again, Leon Morris describes it as undue interest in the concern of one's neighbor. Undue interest. In other words, Thessalonians, live in your lane. So already, (laughs) Paul Paul has just said to us, shut up and mind your business. (laughs) I thought it was funny. Again... Again, I think, I think we're helped here by what's going to come later in 2 Thessalonians 3, where it seems that some in the church had, been, had a preoccupation with and a desire to meddle in other people's lives, busybodies. So some, it seems, were meddling in the affairs of other people, and it was leading to gossip. And we know folks like this, don't we? Those in the church who always have this compulsive itch to always be in the know, you know, they, they make everyone else's affairs their affairs. And so church, I, I think we see very clearly here ways we can apply that practically for us. I mean, I told you this text just gets down to the ordinary, but I thought of two ways, two ways to apply this. Number one, gossip in the church. Are you demonstrating love for the church by minding your own affairs in the church? Or are you quick to spread gossip? It it can be 100% true and be gossip, by the way. So are you demonstrating love by minding your own affairs and not being distracted from what God has called you to do by meddling? Here's a second application. I think a perfect example of this would be 
our social media and online habits. Social media is designed to attract you into the affairs of other people, if you think about it, right? And, and, it, and it draws us into their affairs, right? Likes and, and comments and friend requests and algorithms for ads and, and suggestions and, and you're just filling our world with the affairs of other people and every controversy and every headline and every news story and, and, and every event, let, let, letting me into everyone else's life. And often it just ends up being this massive distraction from our own affairs. I mean, just think how full our lives are with the lives of others. And it ends up, here's what happens, it ends up contributing, I think, to pride. Everything has a comment box. And you need to know what I think about everything. So I got to weigh in. My life isn't enough. I got to be involved in everybody else's stuff. Listen, not all social media is bad, okay, but what if, what if we lived our lives in such a way that we sought to live quietly, we sought to mind our own affairs, and we didn't try to be so connected, connected politically and the latest stories and captivated with everyone else's news and, and, and preoccupying our energies and our time and our focus and our hopes on things that ultimately aren't going to progress the gospel and build the church. Paul says, I want you to be involved in that. And I think if we did that, it would free us from a thousand distractions. Take it or leave it. So are we being faithful, I think, is the call in our lives and our responsibilities by minding our own affairs. Third, third application of love, working with our hands. Verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and finally, to work with your hands as we instructed you. That, that, that's perhaps the most concrete of the three and again, just notice how very ordinary it is. I mean, did, did you ever consider, friend, that you're getting up and going to work tomorrow and working with your hands is an opportunity for you to love others? So do you see what Paul's doing here? He, has, he, he wants to revolutionize our view of work. Because <laughs> some of us hate our jobs some of us just complain about our jobs. Some of us, we're not content in our jobs. And Paul, he wants to take something so ordinary and he wants to infuse it with meaning and purpose, our work. Again, it seems that some in this church, they weren't working. They were being idle. Again, perhaps due to undue speculations about Christ's return. Why? Why work when Jesus is coming soon? Let's go just stand on the hill. Wait. And they were neglecting their duties. Responsibilities at home, their families, their community, the church. They're being lazy. 
perhaps dependent on social structures to take care of them. In verse 11, Paul says, no, no, no. I want you to work with your hands. This is a way in which you express love for others. And so Paul, notice what he's doing, church. He is, he is honoring and he's dignifying our daily work. And it shows us, listen, that whatever you do with your hands, whether it's with a computer or it's with a shovel, whether it's inside the home where you are investing in your kids and raising your kids and you're investing in eternity in your home, or it's outside the home and you're working hard with your hands there. It's an expression of love. Is that how we view our work? As an expression, as an opportunity to love others? How might it transform your view of work to get up and go to work tomorrow? Work with your hands to glorify God and for the good of others. But then finally, after laying out this priority of love, and the three ordinary expressions of love. Then look there, verse 12. Finally, he reveals here the effects of this love. What, what sort of effect will this kind of love have? Third, the powerful effect of love. Verse 12. And notice in verse 12, Paul says there are two effects this kind of love will have. And one, one effect will be inside the church, and one effect will be outside the church. Verse 12, look there. Love one another more and more by living a quiet life, minding your own affairs, working with your hands, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So, do you see the two intended effects that love's meant to have there? See, that's so that. So that. Why, why, why do these ordinary, mundane commands matter? Paul says, I'll give you two reasons they matter. Effect number one, let's just start with the internal effect inside the church. Look there at the second half of verse 12. So that you would be dependent upon no one. So again, there, there were some in this church whose, it seems, undisciplined, unfaithful lives, they, they weren't strengthening the church, they weren't contributing to the church, they weren't serving the church, no, they're draining the church. They're being a burden on the church, they're presuming on the generosity of the church, they're exploiting the church, and really what they're doing is they're weakening the church. In other words, they were loving the church. No, they were putting their own interests over the people of God. The, the health, the growth, the stability of the local church. And in reality, they weren't viewing the church the way God views the church. Do you? Do, do you, not, not as a, a random gathering of people on a Sunday, but as blood-bought family. Blood bought. What an application for us. Do, do you think of the ordinary things of your life as affecting this church? What about my daily habits? 
What about my daily interests? What about my use of time and energy and resources? How is that having an effect on my church? Am I loving them well? That's the first effect it's supposed to have. Here's the second effect. Let's move to the external or outside the church. So notice he goes from inside to outside. What, what effect should our love have on those outside the church? Well, look there, verse 12. Love one another more and more. Do these three things. Love each other well. Why? So that you may live properly before outsiders. Verse 12, properly, meaning nobly, decently, respectfully. Outsiders, meaning the lost. The, the, the unbelieving and yet the watching world. So Paul says, church, I, I, I want you to love each other in such a way. I want you to love each other like this so that it would be attractive to the watching world, to, to outsiders, to those outside the church, so that by the transforming power of the gospel, as they see it at work in your lives and the way you love one another, that those outside the church would be brought inside the church, so that those outside of Christ might be brought into Christ. So notice... Paul's aim here is all for the sake of the gospel. It's to reach the lost. And beloved, one of the main ways in which we will reach the unbelieving world around us is through them seeing our unique, supernatural, yes, ordinary, but extraordinary love. A love demonstrated at the cross a love poured into our hearts by the Spirit, and a love that is spilling over in how we love each other. Oh, this is far from ordinary stuff. This, this has massive, eternal implications. Not political, not social, not economical, but, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and returning God is powerfully at work in the everyday details of your life. And may what Tertullian in the third century, as he records what the unbelieving world of his day said of the church, see how they love each other. And may God give us the grace to see the ordinary events of our lives as opportunities, extraordinary opportunities to glorify him, to please him, to love one another. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.